Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And these guys right here are very anxious to give some Bibles away. They were up earlier. There were no takers. But if there are any takers now, they're going to make their way to the back. And if you need a Bible, they have some for you. Just get their attention. And those are marked for you at Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9. In my lifetime, ten men have occupied the office of president of our country. There have been five Democrats and five Republicans. Now, I'm going to briefly mention something negative about all of them in just a moment. But please know that my criticisms are bipartisan. And hopefully you'll see what that has to do with Christmas in just a bit. You may not know about or remember the incidents that I'm going to quickly mention, and that's okay, but I think you'll get the point anyway. John F. Kennedy was president when I was born and for about a year and a half after that. For all of the hope that this young president brought the country, just four months into his presidency, he approved an invasion of Cuba in what was known as the Bay of Pigs disaster. It resulted in major embarrassment for the United States in the eyes of the world. He was succeeded by Lyndon Johnson, who got our country deeply mired in the conflict in Vietnam that ultimately cost 58,000 American lives. Richard Nixon was caught up in the Watergate scandal and was forced to resign in disgrace before his second term had concluded. Gerald Ford was Nixon's vice president, and he served the balance of his second term. He wasn't in office long enough to do too much damage, though he did grant a full and unconditional pardon to Nixon for any crimes that he may have committed. Unemployment and inflation stifled the nation's economy during his time, but it got much worse under his successor, Jimmy Carter who also oversaw the taking of 52 American hostages by revolutionaries in Iran. They were held for 444 days, and they were not released until after he had lost his bid for re-election in 1980. Ronald Reagan's second administration was beset by the Iran-Contra scandal. It saw 10 members of his administration indicted or convicted. George H.W. Bush broke his unequivocal promise of, quote, read my lips, no new taxes, made while he was campaigning, and that perhaps lost re-election for him as a result. Bill Clinton, time and propriety do not allow. (laughs) But suffice it to say that he committed perjury before a federal grand jury, And he was only the second president in our history to be impeached. George W. Bush was president when our country was attacked on 9-11. He led the nation into war in Iraq. And he oversaw the collapse of our economy in the last part of his last year in office in 2008. Barack Obama has given us Obamacare, the disaster in Syria, and two more liberal judges with lifetime tenure, who have already helped redefine the word marriage, a definition that had held for literally thousands of years through literally the entire world prior to the Supreme Court's decision a couple of years ago. In one month, Donald Trump will be president. What could possibly go wrong? 
Now, each of these men's problems were mostly the result of their own personal failings, though in some cases they were caused by events beyond their control. But consider this. This is really the best that the world has to offer. After all, U.S. presidents have the benefit of intelligence services to minimize surprises and victimization. And they also serve in a governmental structure that checks their ability to single-handedly place themselves or the country in peril. And yet, despite all of that, all of them still manage to do it, Democrat or Republican. A few years ago, I attended a conference at a church in Washington, D.C., just four blocks from the nation's capital. The congregation there at any time has a mix of Democrats and Republicans, and which is in the majority depends on who is in power at the time. The time I was there was an election year, and the pastor said to the church, if the Democrats get elected, this country is going to be in a mess. And while the Democrats in the audience gasped and the Republicans donned condescending smiles, he quickly added, and if the Republicans get elected, this country is going to be a mess also. Now, what does all of this have to do with Christmas? Well, I remind you of the passage that was our scripture reading and that I've asked you to turn to today in Isaiah chapter 9. Again, verse 6. To us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now that passage speaks of the government twice. The government will be on his shoulders. And that's a, a phrase referring to the royal robe a king would wear signifying his authority. And verse 7 says, Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. And his reign is going to be characterized by justice and righteousness and it will last forever. On this Christmas 2016, what I'd like us to do is to survey God's word, the Bible, and see what it tells us about the identity of the one who was born to be king and how each of us can be a part of his administration. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for gathering us on this very special Lord's Day. I thank you for these friends who are here. Come to celebrate the birth of the unique one, the Lord Jesus Christ, both God and man. Help us, Lord, now in these moments as we look at your word, what you promised long ago and how it's all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and how you bid us to be attached to what you are doing in your world through him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, on the back of your program, the very back of your program is an outline of the four major points that I'd like to make for you in the time that we have together. The first one is this. We were made to rule for God. We were made to rule for God. And that goes all the way back to the very beginning of creation. In fact, to the very first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And there the Bible says this, God said, let us make mankind in our image 
so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. It goes on to say that God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So here God, at the beginning of human history, instructs humanity, both male and female, to, quote, rule over the creation. Now, the first part of your Bible that that's contained in, we call the Old Testament. It was written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew term for that word rule means to have dominion or to to dominate. And God also gave mankind the responsibility in that passage to subdue the earth. That Hebrew term means to bring into bondage. The term especially speaks of the work of a king. And so both of those terms, rule and subdue, are linked to dominion. And they show that mankind is created to reign in a manner that demonstrates his lordship, his domination. And that by force, if necessary, over all of creation. Adam and Eve, and by extension, those of us who are their descendants. All of humanity was given by God physical and social and political authority. And this authority was to be displayed in every area, in agriculture, in architecture, in the domestication of animals, in the harnessing of energy and natural resources and other areas. One commentator has said the human creature is made to worship God in a distinctive way. By interacting with the earth, using our God-given power to transform our earthly environment into a complex world, a socio-cultural world that glorifies our creator. Now, this is called the creation mandate, sometimes called the kingdom mandate that God gave to humanity. At the very beginning of human history, this is the awesome task that God assigned to us to rule his world for him. But as the Bible story proceeds, we see that though we were made to rule for God. Secondly, I say in your outline, we chose to rule for ourselves. We were made to rule for God, but we chose to rule for ourselves. God gave one test of obedience to determine whether we would really do as he had instructed in the very first chapter of the Bible. He gave Adam and Eve run of the place, but he said, there's there's one tree among all else that I've given you that you're not to eat from. And similar to a child who, when they're told what they cannot do, is drawn to that very thing. Just a few pages after the creation mandate, the Bible records Eve saying this. God said, we, we, you must not eat fruit from fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden or you will die. But it goes on to say that Satan said to her, you will certainly not die. In fact, you will be like God. So rather than ruling for God. This potential to be our own God sounded good. And so the Bible says, the woman took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And this disobedience resulted in mankind abdicating our responsibility. Now, I keep speaking in inclusive terms. I'm including you and me and all of this. 
I keep saying that we were given this responsibility to rule and that God gave us a test of responsibility to determine whether we would really do as he instructed. But you may understandably be thinking, well, hey, I was not there. Don't blame me for what some guy did at the beginning of time. That's on him. But hear this now. The reason that Adam's sin of disobedience is considered our personal sin against God is because Adam represented us. And he represented us perfectly. God chose the perfect representative so that what he did is what we would have done. And that's why we suffer the effects. Effects like death. It's because we're all guilty. Written nearly 2,000 years ago. But looking back on those first events, which were yet thousands of years before that, the Bible says this. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. Notice, because all sinned. Now consider how seriously God takes this matter of whether or not we fulfill his purpose for placing us here. When our first parents sinned and we with them, the sentence God pronounced was death. By that, God is saying... That if you will not do on earth what I have made you and it for, then you will not remain on earth. You will die and be removed from the land of the living. What we call the fall of humanity into sin resulted in mankind abdicating our responsibility to live for God. And now while we live, we naturally live not for him, but for ourselves. And that's why there's death, because we chose and we still choose to live for ourselves rather than for God. But that obligation to live for God and to rule his world on his behalf still obtains for all humanity, even after the disaster of disobedience at the beginning of human history. Written at least 3000 years after our first parents sinned in the garden. And we abdicated our responsibility to live for God. The Bible says this. You, God, made mankind a little lower than the angels, and you crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Even after we sinned, even after we abdicated, even when we began to go our own way, God, at least 3,000 years later, says, this is still your assignment. This is still what you were, were made to do. So given that we were made to rule for God, but we've chosen to rule and live for ourselves, then what is the answer? The good news is the third thing that I have in your outline. And that is, That Jesus will rule for God. Jesus will rule for God. But before he rules for God as we were supposed to do, he must first become human because Jesus is God. And that's what we celebrate then at Christmas. The coming to earth as man of the one who has been eternally God the Son. 
And how did he do that? The Bible tells us in the New Testament, in the New Testament's very first chapter. It says the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. We've been singing today of Emmanuel. What's that word mean? Translated that word means God with us. So he is the one who from all eternity was and is and ever will be God. But he brought humanity, added humanity to what he always had been. The Bible tells us, also tells us that as well in John chapter 1. Where it says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And then it goes on to say, the word became flesh. And he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So at Christmas, we celebrate the coming to earth of God to carry out this mission. Now, many mistakenly believe that Christ came into existence at what we celebrate at Christmas, his birth 2000 years ago in Bethlehem. But his birth was not the beginning of his existence but rather the beginning of his mission on earth. And Jesus was born in two respects that are very much like us. He was born through conception and birth. But in one very important respect, his conception was different than ours because it was a miraculous virgin conception that meant he did not inherit the sin nature that we all do. So that this unique person, both fully God and fully man, could succeed where we all have failed. The original Adam represented us at the beginning of human history. And 2,000 years ago, God became man to represent us anew so that he could succeed where we failed and so he could rule where we have abdicated. A few decades after the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, The Bible refers to him this way. It says Jesus is the last Adam. There was the first Adam. And that's why when we sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, one of the lines in it is, Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Death was the sentence that God gave for our sin, but Jesus came and he died to free us from the sentence And to restore our original position before God. So here's what the Bible says. Since we have flesh and blood, he too shared in our humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but flesh and blood human beings. Now, just as a quick aside, notice it says it's not angels he helps. That is, unlike humanity which is a race, and every human is therefore related to every other human, angels are individually created, not procreated. They're not related to each other. They're not related to us. They're not related to Jesus. And so he is not their substitute as he is ours. And that's why the Bible says of angels in one place, they long to look into these things. They just observe and they marvel at the fact that God became one of the human race so that he could do for them what they could not do for themselves. He will rule. But the Bible teaches that the cross must come before the crown. 
And that created some confusion among the 40 authors of the Bible. You know there are 66 books in your Bible authored by 40 different individuals writing over a 1,600-year period. But it created some confusion that on the one hand, he's going to rule, he's going to be king. On the other hand, he's going to suffer and he's going to die. For example, 700 years before God came to earth in Jesus, the prophet Isaiah said, he will judge between the nations and he will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That's when he rules. And as we read earlier, he rules over a kingdom of of justice and of, of peace. So this speaks of him coming as king to rule and reign over a time of tranquility and peace. But this same Isaiah says later, he will be cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he will be punished. So on the one hand, he's going to be a king who will rule. On the other, he's going to die for the sins of his people. So how do we put that together? (laughs) And it caused some confusion, even for the prophets like Isaiah, who who wrote it. They understood what it said, but how it's all going to fit together, they didn't quite understand. And so the Bible says of them, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. They searched intently and with the greatest care. And here's what they were trying to do to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Notice the sufferings and the glories, the suffering and the rule. And even after being with Jesus for three years, when he walked the earth and he taught and he healed and he died and he rose from the dead, after all of that, His first followers gathered around him, the Bible says, and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to establish the kingdom? And Jesus' answer to them was, it is not for you to know the times that the Father has set. The answer to this dilemma of how he can come and die, and yet at the same time reign as king, is that it's going to happen in two phases. In his first coming 2,000 years ago, he died for our sin. He rose from the grave. He ascended back to the Father from whom he came. But in the second coming, he will establish his kingdom and rule and reign on earth as we were designed to do. In the meantime, now God is on a rescue mission to bring us into the kingdom. And those who become citizens of his kingdom now, hear this will reign with him then. The last chapter of the last book of the Bible says this. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will reign forever and ever. You see, that's what we were made to do. That's what we abdicated by our sin. And that's what's restored only in Jesus. We were made to rule for God. We chose and continue to choose to rule for ourselves. The good news is this. Jesus will rule for God. And lastly, in your outline, we must choose Jesus to rule us. We must choose Jesus to rule us.
Last passage we're going to look at, I want to invite you to turn to. It's in Philippians chapter 2. And if you're using one of those Bibles that the guys distributed a little bit ago, it's page 819, 819. Philippians chapter 2. And those of you that are with us on a regular weekly basis, you know that we've been going through a series in the book of Philippians. And just last week, we looked at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. I'm going to briefly, briefly recount that. But verse 5 says this, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. When God the Son, Jesus Christ, walked the earth 2,000 years ago, he perfectly obeyed God the Father in all he did, even to the point of being willing to die. Not for himself, but for others. And so the Bible says this about him. After he has had his ministry, decades later, the Bible says this about the ministry of Jesus. And I want you to notice, as we quote this in just a bit, that there's language here from Psalm number 8 that I showed you a bit ago. But it says in Hebrews chapter 2, in putting everything under humanity, God left nothing that is not subject to humanity. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. This is what it's saying. This is what we were supposed to do, but it hasn't happened because of our sin. Humanity, because of sin, lives for self rather rather than God. But then it goes on to say, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor. That's the language from Psalm number 8 which is echoing Genesis chapter 1, and it's all fulfilled in Jesus. And why is it fulfilled in Jesus? Why is he crowned with the glory and honor that we were made for? That passage goes on to say, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Philippians 2, to which I've asked you to turn, says he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Here's what it's saying. Jesus obeyed where Adam disobeyed. Jesus obeyed where we disobeyed. Jesus succeeded where Adam and we failed. And because he succeeded, here is God the Father's verdict on him. Our verdict was death because we disobeyed. But because he obeyed, verse 9 of Philippians 2 says this, Therefore, Now, do you see that therefore? That is because of this obedience in verse 8. Therefore, because of that, God exalted him to the highest place and he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has been given the name that's above every name. What is that name? It's the name Lord. He is the exalted Lord now. And every one will bow their knee. And everyone with their lips will confess that he is indeed Lord. 
And verse 10 says that includes even those under the earth. Do you get this? Even people who don't want to will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. So here's what the Bible summons us to do, friends. Submit to his rule willingly now or forcibly in the future. He lovingly calls you to submit to his loving rule now. That's why we sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive who? Let earth receive her king. And let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. The government, thank God, will be on his shoulders. And we will reign with him. But we will only reign with him if he reigns in us now. Jesus asked this penetrating question when he walked the earth. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You may be here and you're very accomplished. You're very intelligent. But you're using that accomplishment and that intelligence for you and not for God. And Jesus calls you to bow before him and use everything that you are and everything you have for him because he's Lord. And so your take-home truth is this. Jesus Christ is the king of kings. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And as we do, I invite you to bow your heart now before the king. I invite you to admit To realize that you are a sinner as am I. That you have lived your life for you and not for the God who gave it to you. Recognize that Jesus obeyed where we have failed. He obeyed even to death on a cross. He died for you. He died for your sin. And you repent. You say, God, I'm going to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ. When we bow and pray from your heart to God, silently to God. Lord, I'm a sinner. I've gone my own way. I've lived for me and not for you. I ask you to forgive me. I give my life to you. I'm going to go your way and not my way. Today will be the day of your spiritual birth. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you again for this blessed celebration. Commemorating the coming of God the Son to earth. We thank you that he came and we thank you that he fulfilled his mission. To live for us and to die for us so that we can have righteousness and the penalty of our sin paid. So that death is defeated. And so that, Lord, by your grace, then, we can fulfill the purpose for which you originally made us, but which we have all abdicated. All praise, then, belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. I pray, Lord, that there... There are many in this room who have done that and who are praising you and for whom this message resonates in their hearts. And I pray that right now there are some who may be coming to you for the very first time, recognizing that they were made for something different and, yea, something better and bigger than what they're currently giving their lives for. Help them, Lord, to use the considerable gifts that all come from your hand, but to use them for the purpose for which you gave them. 
for you and for your honor and for your glory. As a result of this, may this be a blessed Christmas indeed for all. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.